0: I am Dr. Tasha Browning, a trauma therapist, and this is The Trauma Perspective. In this podcast, we will discuss various topics surrounding mental health, trauma work, trauma healing, and explore the lived experiences of trauma survivors. Be warned, trauma is a dirty topic. It is thick with hurt and it reveals some of the ugliest sides of human existence. These discussions may not be appropriate for all listeners. So take a breath, stay present, and let's discuss the trauma perspective. Welcome to the Trauma Perspective podcast. Today I'm really excited about um, our guest and what we're going to talk about. I've actually, uh, from the time that I started this podcast, I wanted to have uh, her on as a guest because I really admire the work that she's doing and the perspectives that she's taking on disordered eating uh, and eating disorders. So uh, we have Claudia here today. Uh, Claudia, I'm going to let you introduce yourself because I think it's just best if people sort of hear from you, who you are.
1: Okay. Well, thank you for asking me to be here. (laughs) I'm pretty excited about it. It's a topic that I hold near and dear to my heart. Um, I currently work at the guest house as a trauma therapist. I have done my yoga certification with you, Mm -hmm. which I use, and I recently completed my certified eating disorder specialist um, certification. I also do EMDR and um, accelerated resolution therapy as part of the work I do with trauma survivors. Um, But basically, I just do anything that will take the mind And the body and connect it. I started off, I started Mm -hmm. off working at um, the refuge and doing some outpatient work as well. Then I joined their eating disorder program. And finally, I came over to the guest house, which is where I've been almost a year now. So just to add a little bit of context uh, to what Claudia said, when
0: she says with me, she means that um, I do yoga teacher trainings, and she did a trauma-sensitive yoga teacher training um, with me, which I think uh, complements the work of eating disorders very well. So um, Claudia, with all the work that you do, I guess one of the things that we should also know is... Why eating disorders? Like, why did you decide to do this type of work versus all the other areas of mental health that you could have went into?
1: Well, I knew I wanted to work with trauma survivors, and it just so happens that eating disorders are used to help trauma survivors do just that, survive. And usually when people think about individuals with eating disorders, they think that, It's simply based on body image, but it really goes way deeper, and it's more complicated than that. In fact, um, when I went to a conference, I remember one of the presenters saying it's the perfect biocycle social storm, and it really is. So um, I don't just focus on the eating disorder part, but it's a very important part. And for those who don't have actual diagnosed eating disorders, um, research shows that about 50% of the population uh, experiences some form of disordered eating and um, just because people fall short of that diagnostic criteria um, doesn't mean they have a good relationship with food or with their body or even emotional um, relationship with themselves. So I think that it's just interwoven in trauma and it's really hard to separate so I really work with that as I work with the body. I'm glad you mentioned that because I still
0: have yet to work with an individual or even talk to a group of people where they're having issues with any sort of spectrum of eating and there isn't trauma associated with it. There's always a basis of a traumatic experience that has led to a coping mechanism of an eating disorder. Um, But I, I think that with eating disorders, too, people maybe don't realize how diverse this field is. Um when we think about um, the the issues that people have, so maybe you could talk a little bit about the differences between uh, an actual eating disorder versus like what disordered eating is, which is another hot term that people use uh, to these days.
1: right. And basically, it's a spectrum. It's not like it's um, a distinct category for disordered eating or eating disorders. It's just the the frequency and the severity of it. but Basically somebody with disordered eating or an eating disorder is um, trying to use it to cope with something, whether it's emotional regulation, with their trauma. um, But how you recognize it are issues with body image. So body image versus body dysmorphia. Body image is more about self-worth, how I see myself in relation to my body. And um, body dysmorphia is more of a disturbance in how you experience your body. So there's a subtle difference. Sometimes people lump them together. But then the other part that's associated with disordered eating that I believe many people can um, relate to is rigidity. So rigidity in when you eat, what you eat, and having lots and lots of rules. Then there's the piece of control. So um, it's not just the rigidity of it, but it's also controlling certain foods that you eat, meal times, refusal to go outside and eat at a restaurant because you don't know what's in your food. Then there's the obsessive part about it as well, which is calorie counting, categorizing food as good or bad. Um, There's anxiety associated with it as well. so. Eating certain food groups can cause anxiety for a lot of people based on perceived negative consequences. And people just using the control of food, the rigidity and everything to create a sense of safety for themselves. You know, Claudia, I want to
0: go back to rigidity and control because I think that that touches on um, something that we need to cover. And that is, you know, in society, you know, we are praised and rewarded for being very rigid and scheduled and controlled when it comes to our body. Like even when we go to the doctors or I mean, physical medicine doctors um, you know, we are preached to, you know, make sure that in order to be healthy or to maintain a certain weight that we should be watching our calories. We should not be intaking a certain amount. We should be exercising for this amount of time a day. We should be, you know, walking for this amount of time a day. So how do, how How do we balance that out? Like, how do we know the difference between, um, you know, a certain amount of discipline in life being healthy, but then also reaching this uh, level of rigidity, um, Mm -hmm. and then controlling our body to the point where we are not well.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, that's a really good point because that's where a lot of people get confused. And what you're talking about is the perfect platform for somebody to really go into an eating disorder. And in fact, I want to just touch upon um, the latest eating disorder, hasn't quite made it to the Mm DSM-5, but it's an area of research called orthorexia, in which people get to such an extreme and obsessive point with their discipline that they feel bad if they eat a food that's not healthy, and um, it really causes them to go into a tailspin. But the doctors don't always help, Um, the social media doesn't help. But the way you can really tell when it's starting to be a problem, I would say, is when it's starting to affect your daily life. So um, if you're not going out with friends because they're going to a place that doesn't have the food or isn't on your schedule. When you are exercising, where it's starting to interfere with you being able to do other things in your life because it's excessive times at the gym. When you're no longer connected to your body and it's no longer something that you're doing as a choice, but more as an obsession. And that's a big difference. So um, a lot of people have difficulties telling the difference, but you will certainly start to recognize it through anxiety if you start feeling anxiety when you're not able to have things the way you have planned in your discipline. You know I'm gonna touch on this word healthy. (laughs)
0: You you know, like, I I have some strong feelings, I will just say, about using this word healthy when it comes to food. So, I mean, if we're going to lay it on the table, we're going to have to do it. We're going to have to talk about it. Tell me about the idea
1: of this healthiness in orthorexia. So, the idea of being healthy is very individual. Different people will interpret it differently. There really is no regulation surrounding the use of that word, whether it's in products or diets. And we live in a diet culture. So, It really is difficult for me because what it does is it lends itself to adding a moral value to how you eat. So you're a good person if you eat healthy, you're a bad person if you don't. And that then brings in shame and a whole other bunch of issues. Um, So healthy, that's very individual. And I would say I would be very careful about using that word. It's also a word with anybody who has an eating disorder, if it's, it's going to be a um, word that will really
0: trigger them. Um, I mean, it triggers me as a therapist, so I can imagine, you know, um, what clients are going through when I have to uh, explain um, the the nuances of healthy and what's BS and what's not. So um, I think that's an important um, point to make and discussion to have about even the word and the definition of healthy and applying yes. it to people's lives. That's
1: what I was going to say because um, for you healthy may mean something totally different than for me or anybody else because of course it depends on the individual it's very individual but we're trying to lump everybody in in the same term of or idea of what healthy should look like um,
0: I think that would go into we talk about working with people and working with their health um, I think that also goes into um, you know how we apply healthiness to treatment, which we're not going to necessarily talk about right now, but we will get to uh, in another segment. But um, I think that covering the idea of healthy and trying to bring it into treatment um, when we're working with people with issues of um, body image or uh, an eating um, issue, um, it creates new challenges and new problems for us throughout throughout this process of getting them help. Um, and so I think that uh, reevaluating that term is going to be definitely important as we move forward in mental health and working with people.
1: It can definitely trigger people the same as the term normal. What mm. is normal? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. When it, so there is a stigma to it and just definitely being careful.
0: The other aspect of um, actual eating issues that you mentioned is safety. And I think this is a little, known, a little unknown um, aspect to an eating disorder that people maybe don't realize Um, that it brings people a sense of safety to have this particular type of coping mechanism versus another one. I wonder if you um, can
1: expand upon that and sort of give us some background on what that means to people. Right so a lot of times if there is trauma linked to the disordered eating um, people have been in unsafe situations and they have had to find a way to regulate their central nervous system and regulate themselves emotionally and that's really something that food can serve. So if I use food in a way that brings me back and grounds me, I'll give you an example, if you are restricting your food intake, that releases serotonin, okay? It has an actual physical response to it and it helps soothe me in a time when I don't feel safe. Same thing with binging, it releases dopamine, so it makes me feel safe or provides the illusion of being safe. In that moment. It's a short-term fix in the sense of I feel safe in this particular moment but not in the long run because it's actually creating more issues in the long run.
0: You know it's gonna be really hard uh, to change people's uh, feelings of safety I imagine um, when this is really serving an important purpose in their life Um, and the the regulation of figuring out what's safe and what's not as they move forward in their treatment that must be really challenging that
1: is because people are always looking for safety externally where when in reality what you want to do in order to build resilience is go into inner resourcing and build up that resilience that way so it's a matter of teaching people to go within versus externally and that is very difficult because it's Perceived as being easier for me to search for that externally than build that within myself Because most of the time a lot of therapists and a lot of people just don't know how to tap into that And that's where the body piece comes in to play. Yeah So as you know as we move down the idea of
0: what these um, How mental illness shows up in our life and how eating disorder shows up in our life And we know that trauma is a big component. There is still some Um, thoughts out there and some theories out there that um, people can have uh, sort of genetic predispositions to uh, experiencing or having eating disorders run in their family. But I think it's also important to note, which I know you're going to talk about in just a second, um, that most of the ways in which studies have been done about eating disorders have only been on one population of people.
1: Yes, and that is definitely one of the biggest issues with eating disorder research is that it has um, only looked at one population. But I can say from the research that uh, genetic factors definitely contribute to an eating disorder, and there is an overlap in terms of um, the genotypes for eating disorders and substance abuse. So usually the two can go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Uh, More importantly, there's also the intergenerational trauma and the epigenetics associated with that in terms of the genetic factor in eating disorders or disordered eating in general. So um, we just want to make it clear
0: as we move forward with this portion of our podcast that we are totally understanding and we're totally um, in line with the idea that some of the things that we know about eating disorders has only been studied and researched on um, white women, and, and most of those researches have been on white middle class yes. um, women. And so that does not um, necessarily culturally expand um, out into different populations of people um, when it comes to disordered eating um, or eating disorders. And that's something to definitely be noted in research as we look into um, other people's standards and um, cultural understandings, and even sometimes the religious understandings of what eating is and what it means to the, uh, to people. Um, we can only, we are only able to go so far in this area now when we talk about research, but there is an area like Claudia was mentioning that we can go a little bit deeper into because the research here lines up across, um, many different cultures and how we've under, how we understand and have studied generational trauma and when it shows up and people and how eating disorder or, or, or um, disorder eating also shows up in um, these different populations. I want you to know that as Claudia goes on in her speech, some of these ways in which we've seen um, issues with food and eating have showed up after um, they, we study people who were in um, the Holocaust, the way we study people who suffered through potato famine. Um, even in the way we've studied, uh, different cultures, um, uh, during times of war, mm-hmm. um, they've gone in and studied how their, um, eating habits had changed and their drinking and all stuff has changed. And then definitely the way in which, um, inter- intergenerational, intergenerational trauma has been looked at, um, after, um, slavery and the effects of, um, you know, eating and food scarcity, mm-hmm. uh, in African-American, um, cultures. So, um, can you give us some background, uh,
1: on that, Claudia, where do you want to start? It's a big topic, right? I, I know. I'm actually <laughs> like going a to backtrack okay. because I think there's the misunderstanding that eating disorders or disordered eating are associated with a certain weight. So we're only looking at people and what their body size is. But eating disorders, disordered eating is really what's going on in the mind, and it has repercussions psychologically, emotionally, physically. But I want to make clear that it's not about the weight of an individual. So I want I want that to be known. So Claudia, like I just
0: want to make sure I repeat this. So you're telling me it don't matter if you're 50 pounds, if you're 90 pounds, if you're 100 pounds, if you're 500 pounds, it really shows up in anybody's mind.
1: Yes, and that's a big one because there is that stigma. I get so many clients that come to me and say, I can't have an eating disorder. I can't have disordered eating because I'm overweight. And that is the furthest from the truth. It's what's going on in the mind when we're talking about the different psychological and emotional repercussions. And, of course, eventually some of these have physical repercussions as well. But I just wanted to make sure that was clear because that's a big one that I get all the time. So... Um, when I go back, if we're going back to the topic of intergenerational trauma and how that is passed along, it really, if, if you look back, studies have been done, mostly with Holocaust survivors, and it does show an association between the um, eating disorders and families that uh, were part of the, ho- the family members were part of the Holocaust. So that research has been done. There's continued research now with slavery as well and um, African Americans how that has been transmitted from generation to generation. So um, there's definitely a connection and trauma being one of the things that is passed along. Um, One of my quotes that I absolutely love from uh, Dr. Maria Yellow Horse Braveheart describes um, historical trauma as the cumulative emotional and psychological wounding over one's lifetime and from generation to generation following the loss of lives land and vital aspects of culture so i think um, it's really important to understand that for people who have had historical trauma the transition of that trauma to their children is passed on unintentionally Um, in many ways it stems from their own pain but they've never dealt with their way of dealing with the trauma and so they pass it on whether that be addictions or eating disorders um, so it definitely has its roots in intergenerational trauma.
0: And so I think it's a good uh, a time to make sure people have a good understanding of intergenerational trauma because we're, we're not just talking about um, the social and behavioral um, trauma that's passed on uh, in a culture, but we're talking about also the fact that um, when trauma takes place, trauma impacts a person on a cellular level. Yes. So we know that when someone goes through trauma and the body goes through all of its processes to survive, um, we know that changes take place um, on a chemical level, on a cellular level, um, and, and in those changes, a person has been imprinted and the imprint is there. And so, yes, the, it is causable to believe that the DNA is changed and there's scientific proof that backs it up. So when we think about intergenerational trauma, we're thinking about all of the aspects of a person—biological, psychological, uh, social, and uh, behavioral—in the way that this trauma travels um, through families, and it is passed through the DNA. These aspects of survival and change, um, and this has been this like like Claudia said, it has showed up in studies looking at Holocaust. Um, survivors, and so we, when we think about this trauma, let's not just think about um, people's behaviors or people's um, 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 the psychology of things, because that also could put us in a perspective where. Um, people will say, you know, well, it's addiction, you know, you should be able to just stop, right? You know, if it's eating, you should be able to just stop. Like, they think it's just a behavioral um, thing that they can change and they're not taking into consideration that some of this are all the other factors and this could seriously be a a biological change in their bodies that they just aren't able to, um, you know, have a grasp on
1: right now. Right, and I think the, the work in epigenetics will hopefully reveal more as they do more research. But the way they put it is you're born with a gun and society, your culture, and environmental circumstances pull the trigger. So there's definitely, we go back to that biopsychosocial storm, that's an eating disorder or disordered eating. It brings us back there. Absolutely. Um, so with
0: um, all of the ways in which people are dealing with trauma, And they have this intergenerational trauma, and they have all the signs and symptoms of disordered eating. Um, And then they go to their doctor, right? And when I say doctor, guys, I'm referring to like a physical medicine doctor. I'm not talking about like a mental health oriented doctor. Uh, But they go to their doctor, and their doctor goes, "What your BMI? That that's what we're going to focus on. Your BMI. Tell me why." It all leads to this BMI, Claudia, but really it's just, like, pointless.
1: It's really crazy. I, yeah, I have a hard time with that because when this term of BMI, body mass index, came up, it was really about just describing, using a measure to describe the body weight in relation to height. So it doesn't really look at the full picture, not only that, but all of the work on BMI was done with men and did not take into account any ethnic backgrounds, different sex, Um, and so it's really flawed, and it does not even take into account um, a person's muscle mass versus lean mass, which will make the number change. So I think people are trying to change that because there's a whole movement called um, Health at every size, and that's really about a person doesn't have to have a certain BMI in order to be healthy. That myth that people who weigh over a certain amount cannot be healthy is another stigma that is attached to disordered eating and eating disorders, so I really, that's one that gets to me because it's really a useless uh, number to use. However. It's used all the time.
0: And we're not going to talk about how it's used to dictate people's treatment because we're going to go into that at the end of uh, this conversation. Um, If you guys did not know that they will use people's BMI to uh, sort of judge uh, how long they're going to continue to cover their treatment for um, eating disorders, for inpatient reasons and things that I'll let Claudia handle. But, yeah, that's. That's all awful.
1: It really is, and I don't want to go too much into it. But with insurance companies, they are basing coverage for uh, eating disorders based on that BMI number, and like I said, a at the fictional number that was based on white men's bodies. <laughs> exactly, yes. okay. and like I said at the beginning, it's not about the weight. Eating disorders are in the mind. Okay. Just,
0: just, I just want to clarify. There, <laughs> no, there was no women in taking into consideration, nope. you know, pregnant women, older women, you know, women of different ethnic groups, Asian women, Hispanic women, black women, like nobody was taken into consideration yeah. when BMIs were created.
1: Yeah.
0: All right. Just getting that clarity, you know, clarity is good in life. The yeah. truth is really good in life. All right. So, um, we, we know the body mass index is BS and we understand that people are coming to the table, um, now with their generational trauma Their symptoms and and issues, their change in their life and their quality of life, and now they're coming to therapy or they're coming to understand that there's some psychological aspects to this trauma. So there's many different types of trauma. People come to the table with generational trauma, but also people have had additional traumas and things in their life. And because of that, they may have developed some mental health issues based upon life experiences and, you know, blah, 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 right? So, Claudia, now we're, you know, dealing with the psychological aspects of the trauma and the eating disorder. What is that? What Like, where do we go from here?
1: Right, so now uh, we go into the psychology, and basically when dealing with the eating disorders, comorbidity or other psychological issues associated with um, the disorder is... It's just the norm. It's really the rule rather than the exception. So people with eating disorders are also um, experiencing a host of other conditions with mood, anxiety, substance use, personality disorders, and of course, trauma. It has really, at this point, shown that there, research has shown that there's a significant relationship between eating disorders and trauma. And that started off with the ACE studies, which are the adverse childhood experience studies that followed um, people throughout their life, and it showed that these people that had childhood abuse were more likely to have an eating disorder as they um, grew older into adulthood. Is that including sexual abuse, Claudia? That's well, sexual abuse. That's that's the one that everybody thinks of, and yes, very much mm-hmm. so, but. Also, there is neglect, emotional abuse. Oh, yes, um, there's absolutely. There's different types of abuse, and especially neglect, I mentioned that because um, people still don't seem to see that as a trauma, but it's chronic trauma over a period of time where the brain is developing, the child's developing socially as well, so it really affects every aspect of the child. Yes. And so um, it repeats itself, this trauma, it repeats itself throughout this individual's lifetime into adulthood, and they really are just grasping at different coping skills to survive the trauma without ever really really realizing what's going on. So it's really important to do the trauma work in order to do work with the eating disorder. It's impossible to work just with the eating disorder because the eating disorder is a symptom. It's not the root cause. Um so the research does show that trauma is linked with it but it's also been shown not just with females but with men as well it's associated and um it's not necessarily associated with a greater severity in terms of an eating disorder but with eating disorders and there's different types of eating disorders oh, right yeah. now we're just lumping them uh-huh. all together and everybody tends to focus on anorexia bulimia and binge eating but there also is um, another eating disorder called avoidant-restrictive food intake behavior, and that has to do um, with having um, trauma associated with different foods and the negative consequences that come from eating those foods. So that is a whole other animal that people really don't take into account when they're talking about eating disorders or disordered eating. Um. We probably need to talk about um,
0: why is it that people are so fixated on just the anorexia and bulimia without considering this vast world of eating and, and, and disordered eating.
1: I think at this point it's because the research has been done on anorexia and bulimia and now a little bit more with binge eating and binge eating by the way is also the research shows associated with trauma but up to this point the research really lies there most of it the bulk of it but we're working more and more into including the different areas and different populations as well but that's still in the uh, early stages. Claudia do you think that um the
0: prevalence of, like, eating disorders is going to start in childhood. Or do you think it's possible for people to have a relatively great childhood and lean towards an eating disorder as an adult?
1: Definitely. Uh, so as an adult, if you can definitely develop an eating disorder. If you have a trauma, a lot of times sexual trauma, a rape, mm-hmm. it's about... Um, the the client feels if I hadn't looked a certain way I wouldn't have been the target or maybe if I gain some weight I'll feel safer in my body so that nobody will will look at me as a target so it can be something that happens to a person later in life such as that and that they're trying to deal with and the eating disorder develops
0: so really it's just both like whether it's developed in childhood or whether it's you know used as a um, you know a, a a way to provide safety. As an adult, it really doesn't matter um, in terms of when it happens or when it shows up because it can show up in both. Anytime it could show up, definitely. Okay. So um, I know that there is a little bit of um, sort of a relationship um, in therapy, eating disorder and trauma, as you described, but um, there also seems to be
1: a bond. Yes, so um, a lot of times I'll get clients that will tell me that their eating disorder is their best friend. They'll even provide a name for um, their eating disorder. But it's that whole notion of it's always there for them, and they feel very alone otherwise in the world, but their eating disorder is always there to offer them comfort. So it's that notion of a trauma bond, I'll be there for you, yet I'll harm you all at the same time. And so that's a really tricky relationship to get out of. It's an abusive one because you're having it really with yourself, a part of yourself. Um, but that's uh, definitely something that I hear all the time. My eating disorder is always here for me, and I'm alone.
0: I'll be there for you, but I'll, I'll harm you all at once. Do you think that people realize that they? Um, do you think they they realize that they're in a relationship with that eating disorder, a relationship of of benefit and harm?
1: I don't think they always do, and that's part of the work in therapy, is to separate the two because there is a lot of shame when it comes to eating disorders. So it's really about educating the person of what's going on and how the trauma bond is repeating itself in their lives, which is what usually happens with any kind of trauma is there's trauma bonding, there's trauma repetition, trauma arousal, all these different responses to the trauma. And the eating disorder is a coping mechanism that we develop to deal with that and um, try to understand it in our lives. Claudia, I don't think a lot of people may understand like and know what a trauma bond is. So why don't we,
0: like, let, let's, uh, tell me what a trauma bond is.
1: A trauma bond, um, simplest way to describe it is a relationship bond that one has based on a traumatic event or a traumatic situation so with the eating disorder in your trauma you're developing a relationship with the eating disorder based on the need for safety and trying to understand certain situations and that
0: bonding um, ends up regulating people's emotions what 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 other purposes does you know this bond serve
1: okay so the bond is basically helping you to avoid or distance oneself or even numb oneself from any kind of painful feelings that arise from the trauma and also creating safety at the same time. So it really consumes all your time, energy and focus. And it's a way not to really think about what's really there. So when we talk about the avoidance part or the distancing part. Can you tell me about a time
0: or anything that comes to mind, where um, maybe you've worked with someone and um, you have an example of what a trauma bond looks like in someone's life, or how it showed up—a um, trauma bond with an eating disorder. Okay, because we I do was, know that <laughs> trauma bonding
1: can take on many, the time yes, I work. <laughs> many different,
0: many different ways in which people trauma bond. But in the instance of an eating disorder, um, can you tell us what that looks like?
1: Yes. So. Um, is this a story time for you, Claudia? Sure. Okay. Because <laughs> we do story time here. Okay. So I have a client that I actually worked with um, when I was working at an, in an eating disorder program. And uh, this client, uh, she was very successful or is very successful, yet uh, always felt alone based on her traumatic um, events that happened to her. And she would always fall back on her eating disorder. She had a name for this eating disorder. She really personified it. And it was very difficult for her to want to give it up because it was that sense of safety, and she felt that this was the only thing she had for herself that nobody else could touch. You know, nobody else could control that except for her. And um, we worked a lot with the trauma itself and creating safety before I could even get her to a point to want to consider that the eating disorder was being harmful. So um, usually when I work with people with trauma and eating disorders, I really have to work on grounding and getting them in touch with what their inner resources, how to self-soothe before we even talk about the story of trauma or try to touch the eating disorder. So... This particular situation, the
0: actual eating disorder, because of the trauma behind it, was so developed that it actually took on its own identity. Yes. Yes.
1: It was very big part of this individual. Yes. Okay. It was so, part of her identity, and she didn't know at this point how to let go of that part. Absolutely. So I think that leads
0: us into where um, I think maybe we should get into the treatment of trauma, but I'm going to let that be its own separate conversation. So if you guys are interested in continuing, um, you know, joining me and Claudia in this talk about eating disorders, we're going to have a completely separate conversation on what it looks like to do treatment. Um, with eating disorders or disordered eating and I hope that maybe uh, you will consider joining us for that thank you so much for your time and we'll see you soon